This is Chris Vogler. I'm the author of The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers, and also Memo from the Story Department, Secrets of Structure and Character. And you're listening to Genretainment. Hi, everyone. This is Genretainment. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And what you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song from our web series, Reality on Demand. It was a song composed and performed by our friend Tishon Hardy. Today on Genretainment, we speak with Pamela J. Smith. She is a mythologist, author, international consultant and speaker, and award-winning writer, producer, and director with over 30 years' experience in features, television, music videos, commercials, documentaries, corporate, military films, and web series. I've known Pamela for a few years now, and it was great to finally have her on the show. We talk about her nonfiction books, including Beyond the Hero's Journey, Romantic Comedies, and Show Me the Love, All Kinds of Love for All Kinds of Stories. She shares writing tips, and we discuss all sorts of topics, including the different kinds of love. (laughs) Yeah, it was great chatting with her, and we hope that you enjoy this interview with Pamela J. Smith. Hi, Pamela. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. This should be fun. Yes. So we're happy to finally have you on here. I know since since I got to meet you in France, which has been, I don't know, a few years now, and we've been wanting to get you on the podcast. My MFA is like made things chaotic so we have to arrange that gosh, you have no Uh, idea so but thank you for being here i think you again also just had you talk to a group of my students at kwc and oh yes thank you for that and and your approach storytelling really clicked with them i could tell so thanks again all right so every script consultant developmental editor type person out there they take a unique approach to how they break down story structure and help writers and you take a like a mythic approach which is so cool. And can you talk a little bit more about that approach to story and what caused you to kind of follow that path? Oh, okay. Uh, yes, thank you. I, well, let's see where to start. Well, you just I got right into the big question. <laughs> well, we'll do a little background, then I'll speed up to the present. Um, I first got interested in mythology in the fifth grade when our teacher would have us come in after lunch and lay our little heads down on the desk, and she would read to us for about half an hour. Wasn't that the greatest? Well, it was fabulous. And what she did was she read from the Iliad and the Odyssey. And in that entire school year, we made our way all the way through the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I thought, oh, these are great stories. How amazing. And I grew up in a small town in Texas, and I recognized a lot of the things that were going on, you know, like rigged beauty contests and people cheating on each other and ruthless ambition. I just thought, oh, this mythology stuff is great. And then in high school, I studied Latin and then continued that through college and took um, my minor is in Latin, so I got exposed to a lot of the classics and was just always interested in it. And then uh, out here in Los Angeles, I was taking some courses once in the physics of metaphysics and uh, basically group dynamics and we got into the chakras and archetypes and symbolism and all of this and at one point the teacher said okay I want all of you to regardless of your profession I want you to come up with something you can do with this information that applies in your business and at the time I was producing and directing commercials and 
documentaries and corporate and military films. I thought, well, geez, okay, how can I do this? But it immediately became apparent that all of the best stories have something in them of the mythic tools of mythic themes, archetypes, and symbols. And those are the stories that last because they have that global touch point for us in what they are about, whether it's stealing fire from heaven or lost love rescued or the wake-up call. And then you've got the archetypes, which, you know, a good story will have well-defined characters that if you look closely, they're aligned on an archetype. And then, of course, symbolism in storytelling, visual storytelling, as well as, of course, prose. It's just there. So uh, that's how I put together MythWorks, which then offers to storytellers in any style or genre how to use mythic themes, archetypes, and symbols to enhance their storytelling. And I was just so tickled that, that all the pieces came together. As I sometimes say, all those otherwise useless bits of information I'd collected over the years all of a sudden became something I could use. <laughs> I believe there's no such thing as useless information. All knowledge is good and nothing's ever wasted. Yeah, my psychology degree, I was like, oh, I'm never going to use this now. But yes, it does do help out with characters and, and other yeah. things. So. And oh, yeah. to me. <laughs> the notebooks I've collected. The, the abnormal psychology alone. <laughs> the case study will be out next year. <laughs> no, but, I, you know, I've pointed uh, that out to him that, you know, when he started, when he went to film school, and whether you're writing characters, you're acting, explain to me how that's not psychology. I mean, you know, it's, uh -huh. it's, it's a part of it. Yeah. Absolutely. And one thing I find that a lot of beginning writers do, and, you know, all of us probably did this at the beginning, is uh, most of your characters tend to sound, act, and speak similarly. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, one of the biggest challenges when you is when you first start writing is to make unique characters, and that's where archetypes and psychology can really come into good service for you as a storyteller to create really unique, distinct characters and really enhance your story. You know the internal conflict, the conflict between characters, between you know the characters, the environment, etc. So it's really valuable. Mm -hmm. Very much so. For sure. Yeah, I've gotten pretty heavy into genre and reading different people's takes on story types. Yeah. Like we had a speaker recently at the university that talked about fairy tales and how she uses them to retell her stories. So I was really interested in your book, Beyond the Hero's Journey, because we hear about the hero's journey all yeah. the time. And, but we don't hear too many people offer alternatives. Can you tell us about a little bit about that book and maybe give us a little example of one of those mythic themes that's not a traditional hero's journey? Oh, sure. And uh, first of all, I always like to say that Joseph Campbell did an amazing job of popularizing mythology. Mm -hmm. And his Hero with a Thousand Faces and all of his other works are, are just amazing. And anybody interested in story or, or just, you know, for a good read, uh, go back and dive into those and Chris Vogler did an amazing job of taking the hero's journey concept and parsing it out giving us the steps 
interpreting it for us, and his book, The Writer's Journey, is really, really good, and I highly recommend everyone have it in their library. However, Joseph Campbell, a couple of years after he put out Hero with a Thousand Faces, saying it was the monomyth, said, "Eh, you know what, there's other stories too. There's other themes going on here. So it's not that that's the only one, but it's one that people tend to fixate on. Mm -hmm. So when I started doing this, started looking around, and I started coming up with, and you know, I didn't invent these, I'm just pointing them out. There are a number of different themes, and I'll just go through a couple of them here that I often find people are following in their stories, but they may not know it. Another thing that happens when I'm working with clients is they'll say, I keep trying to fit this into the hero's journey, and it just doesn't quite fit. Well, maybe you're not telling a hero's journey mythic theme. Let's take a look and see what you're doing. So a couple of the big ones that I think a lot of us would recognize, certainly uh, Lost Love Rescued, and that's from the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, most, let's say, uh, recognizable, where the people are already together, and one of them gets taken away. They die, or they get stolen, or they self-destruct, and the other one has to go rescue them. So the uh, Orpheus and Eurydice myth is a, a really good template for lovers who become separated. And you've got some um, examples of that would be like, oh gosh, the English patient, um, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, slumdog millionaire. What dreams may come, absolutely. And uh, a star is born where somebody just falls by the wayside or gets taken away, and then the story is about rescuing the lost love. And it really tugs the heartstrings, so that's that one. That one really does. (laughs) (laughs) And I like how you break it down, too, because you talk about, like, the, I don't know what to say, original myth, but the oldest, one of the oldest versions of the myth and then in detail. And then you talk about, you, you break them down in plot points so writers can use that as a guide, kind of guideposts and stuff, uh-huh. uh, symbols and, and other, many other things, and examples, like you, like you just said. Yeah. I need to watch more movies. <laughs> It's, uh, I find it, it helps people to uh, grasp the concept of a mythic theme story-wise with those plot points, to think of it like a color palette or a musical key. Mm-hmm. And you, if you touch upon, let's say there are 12 plot points in that particular mythic theme, if you touch upon six of them, we're still going to get it. Because these things are embedded in our psychology. They're in in the collective unconscious, the collective consciousness. So all you have to hit is half a dozen of those plot points in any order you want. And you'll find that people will respond to it. They will may not consciously say, oh, this is a a stealing fire from heaven story. You know, like where Prometheus, Mm -hmm. the... The Titan brought fire down to humans because they were cold and shivering and they had nothing to do at night because it got dark. Then he did that and all heck broke loose for him because you weren't supposed to help. It's sort of like the prime directive. Don't take things from heaven and give them to the humans down on earth. Mm-hmm. But he did it. And then, uh, gosh, poor Prometheus. But this makes a good story point. 
his punishment was he got chained to the Caucasus Mountains, and every day an eagle would come and peck out his, his liver. liver. Yeah. And then every night it would grow back again, and the next day the eagle would come back again and peck out his liver. Well, and, that is a uh, painful way to go. <laughs> yeah, I should think so. Ew. And interesting to note, too, that the liver is, I believe, the organ of anger in um, oriental medicine. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, there's always, you know, martinis and such as that. But in the story, uh, but the point for the storytelling is if you're doing a stealing fire from heaven, your protagonist is usually of an upper class, something privileged. And they have compassion on those below them. They take something that is being denied to the lower classes and they bring it to them, knowing that they may well be punished for it, but they do it anyway. So there's a real self-sacrifice involved in there as well as the altruism. And it can make for very, very heartfelt stories. You know, you see a lot of this in the, the teaching stories where some, you know, teacher goes like dead poet society. Straight out of Compton is another one where the people are trying to help each other up and out of a situation. So it makes for, it's a mythic theme that makes for some uh, very inspiring and yet realistic stories where you can get across a message while still entertaining people. That's very true. Talking about that, maybe we talk about how, what mistakes you can make doing that. Because I know earlier in the book you talk about uh, how to maintain originality while retelling a story but also giving warning about how not to do that retelling, how you, how you could accidentally lose the what makes it special, I guess, in that retelling. And since we got reboots and movies oh constantly. <laughs> Out the wazoo it's probably a good, is the technical term. It's I probably believe. a good thing to touch on. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, about um, maintaining originality instead of just following the cookie-cutter formula. Yeah, not losing you know, what was special about whenever you retell, when you reimagine that story, too. I think all anyone wants anymore are cookie cutters, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you touch upon an interesting point there, Julie. The two elements essential for good stories are familiarity and surprise. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's why you find little kids, oh, read me that story again. I yeah. read it to you, folks. Times. But I want, to, I want it again. Or how many times did your kid watch The Little Mermaid, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's how their well, brains we, learn, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we love familiarity, but we're also wired for novelty. So we want a surprise as well. And I think maybe, uh, this is just be kind of blue skying on the theory here, but maybe one of the reasons that sequels, keep being turned out is we're kind of done with surprises here for a while we've sort of had enough lately <laughs> that's a good point you know? we're we're seeking comfort food and in, in our entertainment as well yeah yeah and i find myself doing it too you know guilty pleasures i'll just watch something that uh, under ordinary circumstances i might not but i find it comforting <laughs> but i think for elegant entertaining inspiring, enlightening media, we have to do both. We yeah. have to rise above just familiarity. We do need the surprise, and whether that's somebody bringing a contemporary twist to a very old story, 
or rearranging the bits. Uh, one of my favorites about this, when I talk about the plot points and also the mythic statements, Apocalypse Now came out in 79, and it's still my favorite film of all time. And then next is Lawrence of Arabia. But mm. Apocalypse Now, because of the way the story was constructed, you kind of start from the back and then move forward. And that's a surprise. We're telling a familiar story with, you know, the wake-up call and the rise through the chakras and, you know, the whole heart of darkness thing. But the way that it was constructed was surprising. And so many, many people found it engaging because of that, I think, in part. So, yeah, not to be, the point is, don't get stuck in the progression of plot points of whatever theme you're following. Feel free to shuffle them around and do it however you want to, you know, a series of flashbacks or go linear, but, you know, give us your twist on it or just mix them, mix them up. But still, hit those half a dozen plot points in order to have your story resonate with that story that lives up in the, the oo sphere of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Also, earlier in there, you talk about mythic theme and about how it's important to, to narrow down that theme and how some modern stories tend to like lose that. Like they're just they're a mixture of all sorts of stuff going Trying on. Trying to do too much at once, maybe, is what you're maybe. saying? Maybe. I don't know if you would like to talk a little bit more about that, how important a mythic theme is in that. Well, explain oh, what it okay. is and why it's important, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think, again, it's, uh, let's go to a musical metaphor. And let's say, okay, freeform jazz aside, for the most part, if you're going to have a piece of music that people can tune into and get something from, it needs to be in a certain key. And certainly you can have key progressions, of course. And there is a pacing, there is a style. You have your symphonies and your concertos and certainly in classical music, more of a a structural format there. But you also find it in pop songs and in, um, you know, rock is different from blues, etc. Well, same thing with your stories, with your themes of your stories. If you've got too many things going on at once, then it's confusing for your audience. Mm-hmm. And like, what was that story about? Mm-hmm. So what I'll often find looking at somebody's story is, um, and even I do brainstorming sessions also where somebody, they haven't written it yet, but they're thinking of writing, well, let's say, a rom-com or an action-adventure, and they've got this bunch of ideas. And So part of the brainstorming service is to help them refine it down to what's the story you want to tell. And maybe it's the theme of going native, where somebody goes, it's the stranger in a strange land kind of thing. Mm. You know, Dances with Wolves, Avatar. Mm. Love those. Dances with Wolves. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lords of Arabia. Uh, Avatar is the most recent one, mm-hmm. I think, that 
Haley did a good job of that, where you go into a situation that is totally alien to you, and eventually you become part of it, you become accepted by it. Then to remember also, you can have your main mythic theme and then also a subplot theme. And, and most good stories will do that. There's the plot and there's the subplot. Mm-hmm. And so they're on different themes. And let's say you're doing, um, maybe it's the search for the Holy Grail. But the subplot is a wake-up call theme, where like Parsifal, who was out searching for the Holy Grail. And you find this in Indiana Jones, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, the old Gilgamesh story, Excalibur stories, looking for that thing that will save the kingdom, the thing that will save the people. Well, that's the overarching theme, but Never then along... Story. Yeah, right, right, that's a good one. That's, that's a good one. one. Of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. And then your protagonist can also be doing, let's say, the wake-up call, or maybe it's the search for the soulmate, or some other of the mythic themes. But themes are real important for clarity, to get your audience tuned in to the story they're going to be seeing. Because once again, we're familiar with the themes, even if not consciously. So for instance, one of my favorites is the beginning of the first Star Wars. Okay, not episode one, but the very first one that came Right. Episode four, oh, yeah. A New Hope. It, yes, as far as in, yeah. in my world, episodes one, two, and three don't exist. So we just <laughs> pretend those aren't real. <laughs> don't wait. We just don't know that it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> at first, when you're sitting there in the theater, you know, I started the Chinese theater in Hollywood, and this little this plane, you don't know how big it is, but this spaceship you know comes in from the from behind you on the right and it's coming along and it's going along and then the theater starts to vibrate and then coming in behind it is the nose cone of another spaceship only it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and the theater's just roiling with sound and you realize oh this is david and goliath in space yeah, and you get it. You get the theme at the very beginning. It's a you know war in heaven theme also, but yeah. So telegraphing to your audience what kind of a mood to get in is so helpful. Because you know, and I'll admit this happened to me a couple of times. I I'd see a movie and I'd go, I, you know, I just kind of didn't get it. And then someone would say, Pamela, it was a comedy. <laughs> I totally missed that. Well, there's a lot of... Your audience doesn't get it, but... There's a lot of comedies that I don't understand what was supposed to be funny about it. Like, never in my life have I understood a lot of Saturday Night Live humor. I mean, mean, it was good in, like, the late 80s, and then pretty much after that, I don't get it. (laughs) Uh And there's a story uh, along those lines that may be apocryphal, but then it that in the first Men in Black movie, Tommy Lee Jones did not know it was a comedy. Oh. And so he was making it straight. Mm-hmm. And, it, of course, it made it work, but oh, it's a good story. It. <laughs> so it worked great. <laughs> I know. I, I 
I don't care if it's true or not. I think that's a good take on it. <laughs> it was, yeah. And, you know, it was a funny movie, but he was brilliant in it. So, yeah, that would that's a great... I hope it's true. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about yeah. comedies. Let's, let's mention another book of yours. So the romance genre is one that I'm not as well-versed in, although Julie's seen many... Many. I like to watch Hallmark, although I'm not so much in all... I do watch some of the romance. I'm more into the mysteries, but um, even the mysteries have oh. romance in them. <laughs> well, we, we, looked well, at, I... yeah, we looked at your book, Romantic Comedies, and at first wasn't sure what to expect, but it's, ended up being, it's a really cool guide to like a large number of rom-com films out there. And, and I like how you use it. It could be used by writers to study different... Mm-hmm. different uh, rom-coms out there romance stories but also could apply it to your real love life in a way too (laughs) so uh can you tell us a little bit more about that book yes thank you i i must thank ken lee our publisher for coming to me and saying would you write this book about romantic comedies and i said ken i'm not necessarily a big fan of rom-coms i mean i watch a few but i'm not you know like a huge fan he said no i think you can do this Okay, we'll see. So I was so glad he did. And in putting this together, the goal was to uh, put it into categories of different types of love. And so when people were looking for a movie to watch, mm-hmm. they could say, well, you know, I don't know. I've been divorced for three years. Mm-hmm. I think maybe I want to start dating again, but I'm just not sure. Well, Look at romantic comedies, the movie guidebook, and there's a category for that. Mm-hmm. So you can look at a couple of films that address that sort of thing. And what I did was, because there's so many rom-coms out there, was to say, if it gets included in this book, it has to embody at least one of these four qualities. Idealism, joy, passion, or dignity. And it really helped narrow down that huge field of rom-coms. What I discovered in doing the book was there's a lot of really good storytelling within that genre. And there are so many wonderful messages to people about the value of love and friendship and courage to start over, courage to reach out for love. Um, not to be held back by age, either side, you know, young or old, Mm -hmm. not to be held back by uh, social or cultural barriers, but to to reach out for, well, the idealism, to reach out for love and all that it can bring and, and the ways that it can enhance the lives of so many people. So I actually really enjoyed it. (laughs) <laughs> and along the way, I got to see a lot of good movies. Yeah. Well, and he teases me a little bit. What we were talking about, how with everything going on now, you know, we all are sort of craving comfort food, but in entertainment, I'm kind of craving comfort food. And I know when I watch a Hallmark movie, I know that I'm not going to, you know, anytime I'm watching, whether it's a romance or one of their mysteries, I, I don't have to worry about being surprised about a graphic rape or a dismemberment. You know, I can just 
sit back and I know what I'm in for, for the most part, so I can enjoy the ride. And you know, at the end of the romance, they're going to kiss. The, the end is when they kiss, you know, like they don't kiss until the end. And at the end, they kiss. And that means they get to live happily ever after, because that's just one of the, the tropes. They, at the end, they kiss. Mm-hmm. And that means everything's good. You know, in the mysteries, they're going to solve it at the end. And yeah, there's a murder, but it's still, it's nothing going to be graphic. It's not. So the fact that I know those parameters are there are what draw, it's not, it doesn't, it's not repetitive or dull. It just means, okay, this is my, my safe zone. I know basically what I'm in for and I can sit back and enjoy the ride. Yes, absolutely. And within that familiarity of the genre, the surprises come in how you get to that last kiss. Yeah. And that's, well, like you say, it's comfort food. And, and we all like that, whether we're looking for the, the action adventure mm-hmm. or the romantic comedy or, or the westerns. The... That's the other one I get teased for. I love westerns, old westerns. <laughs> oh, oh, cool, cool. Yeah. So what you're saying is I shouldn't like trick you by saying, here, this is a rom-com movie called Saul. Mm-hmm. It's about a lumberjack guy. No, you're my... still in trouble. <laughs> no, he's still in trouble. I don't know how many years ago this was. I don't know. I don't play video games and I don't watch horror. So I don't know what any of this is. Years ago, he's like, there's this new movie, Resident Evil. Let's go see it. I had no idea it was going to be gross and have a bunch of zombies and crap in it i mean as soon as it started i looked at him and i go you are so dead (laughs) (laughs) oh dear (laughs) you were paying for this for a long time i almost Uh, walked uh, out and just uh, said pick me up at the bar at the other end of the parking lot when it's over it's, it's this comedy about this lonely landlord and this resident girl named Evil who comes in. Well, I mean, I love. knew it wasn't going to be a Hallmark movie called Resident Evil, but you didn't exactly prepare me for it either. Yeah, I should have rethought that. Yeah, he's still paying for that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, we're talking about love, romance. <laughs> love after resident <laughs> evil uh we did we also checked out your book show me to love which turned out to be an excellent guide to different types of love including maybe that aren't romantic types right you know even some more could be negative types like love of death and destruction you know <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like someone who would take their wife to something called resident <laughs> evil can you tell us <laughs> a little bit more about that book book and your and your approach to it well yes thank you um my a writing partner, Monty McMillan, and I were talking about the different types of love. I, I actually forget what we were working on, but there was some maybe a line about, oh, I just love this. And say, you know, there's so many different kinds of love. Is there a better word we can find for <laughs> what this person saying? I thought, you know, unfortunately in English, we use love right. as just this generic word. Whereas, you know, in Greek, in Greek you've got, yeah. oh, what, five, seven different types of love, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, agape and eros and patrios and philios and, you know, love of family, love of country, love of uh, the gods, romantic love, erotic love, etc. And thought, well, you know, that could make an interesting book 
looking at the different types of love. So that started us on the quest to compile these different types of love, and uh, it was quite an interesting process writing the book, uh, particularly just saying, okay, what's the, the first ones we're going to do? So we've got, you know, the first book has 12 different kinds of love in it, for warrior love, love of animals, or let's say love for animals, love of art, adventure, uh, interspecies love, uh, transformative love, and we were so interested to see how many stories actually had love in them. Sometimes you don't think about it, say, well, it's an action-adventure movie. Yeah, but there's some love in there. Maybe it's, you know, the characters who bond before they go and, you know, take on the big challenge. So you've got that kind of warrior bonding. And then the mere fact that they're out there having the adventure, that's love of adventure. And if they're doing it to save their family, well, then you've got familial love, etc. Absolutely, absolutely. You bet. Great Christmas film, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. I I like rewatch that every decade or so. (laughs) I only recently saw it, so (laughs) it's fresh in my mind. She never watched it. I finally got her to watch it with me, like a. Your, well, you still uh, haven't seen all the President's Men, and you promised you'd watch that because it's yeah. one of my favorites. Ah, there's a good one. That's uh, you know, love of uh, love of civil society, love of community. Mm-hmm. That was one of the most inspirational films I watched when I was young. Ah, uh, yeah. But I'm, good one. I'm curious about. I just started thinking about. You know, we're talking about how in English we just have the one word love, and I wonder if our understanding of just having that, that one word love in our language, if that sort of kind of reshapes our, our understanding of love and, and I wonder if that's the reason, you know, we only have the one word love. So many people seem to think of love as zero sum game or competition. You know, it's like people who are insecure, it's like, well, do you love, you know, you love your family more than you love me or you love them more than you, or you love the dog more than you do that. And it, and it's like, no, it just, there's different loves. I have familial love for my family. I have a parental love for my child. Then I have like a spousal love, which is romance and family and everything sort of wrapped up in one. If sometimes if, just having the one word for love in English almost kind of warps our sense of what love is. Yeah, I think it does. I think it does. It both devalues it and uh, keeps us from more deeply and accurately expressing our emotions. Mm-hmm. Whether you say, oh, I love pistachio ice cream. Well, you're using the same word that <laughs> you say, I love my family. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I get, you know, I get, because I love, love animals and animals have been, I just, you know, non-human animals have been as important in my entire life as any humans have been for my whole life. And I've had animals of different species that I consider as much my family, every bit as much my family, and I love them every bit as much as I do human members of my family. And so many people 
think that means there's something wrong. You know, if you're like that, people are like, there's something wrong with you. You know, you so you love animals more than people. I'm like, no, it's it's the same. You know, it's the same amount, but it's just, you know, you can still loving animals as much as I do doesn't mean I love humans any less. In fact, I found the more compassion and love I have for non-human animals, the more compassion and love I can muster up for people, you know? <laughs> but so many people feel like it's a competition. Like, well, if you can love an animal as much as, as you do, then, you know, and then you hear people all the time saying things like, um, well, I loved my dog too, but then I got a kid. Then when I had my kid or, or we get a, a puppy as a practice child. And I'm like, oh my God, that is not how it should be. You, sh you know, to me, that makes love really fickle. Like, well, I loved this until something newer and bigger came along. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's like, you're going to love, like, you're not going to love that kid after you have the new one. I mean, but so many people feel like you have to quantify love and you have to like put it in order. Like, well, if you love animals that much, then there's something wrong with you because you're supposed to love people more than animals and kids more than this and more than adults or you know and it's just this bizarre zero-sum game people seem to have with the word love instead of thinking you know the more love there is then the more love there is you know <laughs> I don't know it just seems like maybe language might kind of inform our understanding of it I think it absolutely does and you know, linguistics both reflects and shapes psychology. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I I think it'd be great if we did come up with some other words for love. And, if, you know, after we wrote this book, I try to be careful in my own speech and mm -hmm. not to say, I love mm -hmm. pistachio ice cream, but to say, this is my favorite ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> and I found myself, because, you know, we have... Well, now we have two cats and a rabbit, and I tell them all the time, and I tell Marks, I, I'm constantly going, I love you, and the babies, I'm like, mommy loves you. You know, I take a bite of, yeah, like ice cream, I like took a bite of ice cream, like, oh my gosh, I love this ice cream, and I swear, like, my one cat's just looking at me, she kind of looked at me like, excuse me? I'm like, not like I love you, you know, mommy loves you more, this is just, I really like the ice cream, <laughs> you know? Like, I'm... You don't taste nearly as good as ice cream. <laughs> I find myself, like, trying to explain it so I don't hurt my cat's feelings, you know? <laughs> That's adorable. Oh, now, flipping back over to rom-coms for a moment, notice how in a lot of romantic comedies and in just, you know, movies with romance in them, how often it is difficult for someone to say, I love you yeah. to the other person. So we're perfectly willing to toss around, oh, I, I, I love NASCAR, you know, I, I love this, I love the rabbit. But to say I love you to a person, mm -hmm. it's scarier, I think. But You're putting yourself out scarier. there. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's changed so much? I've brought this up with Marks and when we're watching TV and movies. I'm like, we're watching something on TV or a movie, and these people... They're, they're dating for a few months. They're having sex like bunnies and heat. And then they're talking about moving in, but then they're like, oh, we haven't said the L word yet. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Uh -huh. Like, it just, for some reason, I mean, I, 
it just seems so odd to me because I mean it's been a long time since I've been single but I just am watching I don't know if it, I guess I'm just getting old but I'm just watching it and I feel so sad for for so many for for people who are in a generation where it's easier for them to get naked with each other physically than it is to just have the courage to get emotionally naked and say I love you you know and it and it's just it just seems so sad and some of I think that's why I maybe gravitate more towards the like the hallmark which I suppose is a bit more in sex terms is a more conservative you know at the end they kiss you know that's how you know everything is okay because when I see things now where people are like we're moving in but we're not thinking of getting married uh we're having sex all the time but I can't bring myself to say I love you I just feel so sad <laughs> it, it is interesting how we compartmentalize ourselves and our lives and our relationships and, you know, psychologists, well, we happen to have one on the phone here, right, um, <laughs> yeah. could address that, too. You know, the vulnerability that saying I love you presumes. It's and that like it like the communication is more frightening than even physical intimacy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, flipping over to the chakras for a moment, the... The sacral chakra, the second from the bottom, the root chakra, then the sacral, mm -hmm. is where, you know, a lot of erotic connection, literally, happens. And it's different, though, from the higher chakras where there can be more connection, more transformative mm -hmm. love, and more inclusive love. So, yeah, how do we go about getting a healthy approach to all that. And, you know, there's obviously books and classes and therapists and TED Talks <laughs> addressing all of these issues, but I think it behooves us to take a look at it and see, you know, where we stand, what kind of stories we want to tell about people who deal with these issues. Yeah. I feel like um, that's something we had touched on before. You know, I almost wonder if in this age of, texting and social media like you even I've even heard younger people saying they get nervous when their best friend calls them on the phone they'd rather text because what if they don't know what to say and I'm like that is so sad when I was young and uh, pubescent and then through teenagers I mean we talk on the phone or in person with our friend for hours and you never even thought about worrying about what to say they're your best friend you can say nothing or say something stupid who cares you know because I feel like there was a bit more intimacy just even among friends and and now it's people have gotten so I don't know if that's going to start changing um the rom-com the romantic comedies and and romance stories from here on out that people are more comfortable getting naked and making sex tapes than they are saying I love you. They're more afraid of, of communication intimacy of just a deep conversation with somebody than they are, you know, sharing every intimate aspect of their life online with everybody forever. You know, I wonder if that's going to really change our idea of what a rom-com is. Do you think that's going to ever, you think that's going to have an effect? Or has it? I, th I think it has already to somewhat. Now, it's 
it was, I forget when this one came out, but uh, Friends with Benefits, that's been over 10 years. But um, I, I could almost, you know, just now thinking about this, I could almost see rather a reversion to romance and uh, that that belies then and then sort of takes us away from the aversion to romance that we're seeing in a lot of people today. Mm. So there may be, you know, just because the pendulum swings in yeah. society and such, so it, there may be a revival of chivalric love. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah and that's, you know... I think the three of us oh, need to team up and make a radio show called Therapytainment. Therapytainment. <laughs> That's an interesting idea. We should hear more about that sometime. I like it. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah, I just, I kind of wonder what, um, if our new social, because, you know, society has changed a lot in the last many years, and and also with technology and with social media, I wonder if our understanding of even something as basic as, you know, we were talking about the hero's journey and things like that, if, if it's going to start affecting people's ability to connect with these stories, or um, do you think there's still just always, that's a no-brainer, they're always going to be, the, you know, we were talking about the myths and everything, if that's always just going to be timeless, I hope. I, I think it is, and in a lot of my work, and with anyone who, you know, looks into mythology or history, you can go back and read love poems from ancient Egypt, mm-hmm. and they could have been written today. Yeah. And, no, I think there are, in spite of the societal manifestations and the cultural dressing that happens in any particular culture, I think the basics of human psychology prevail. And there is a, a desire for self-expression. There's a desire for connection. There's a desire for belonging. There's a desire for um, the transformation that romantic love can bring. That chivalric love, that sort of love that, oh, to uh, you know, quote a number of things, makes you want to be what the other person thinks you are. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. You know, and I hope you're right, and you probably are, because we sometimes watch foreign films and things, and it doesn't matter what language or culture or religion. I mean, people in those movies and TV shows that just, like here in the West, they're looking for love, they want to fall in love, and they want to be happy, you know? And also, we're talking about how I love, like, old Westerns, but I also love, like, just old TV shows and classics and things and there are times I'll go oh my gosh and I'll show him something that I just watched or explained and I'm like I don't know if it's really reassuring or really sad but this could have been made today (laughs) yeah I mean some things don't age well but you know um, for the most part it'll be a conversation and I'm like oh my gosh this was you know 50 years ago or whatever and this is a conversation that could have been happening today (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, very much so. And that is, well, one more thing about love, and then I'll say something quickly about the mythic statements. I think what those, I think what we're all looking for is the light, mm-hmm. and that's with a capital L. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And whether it's, you know, the light of truth, the light of connection, that what romantic love promises you is a, a trip to the light. And sex, drugs, and rock and roll, it's all about getting you to the light. So there's this inherent moth-like tendency, I suppose, in humans that we, we crave. It's not, not our only craving, unfortunately, but we do crave that, that higher, elevated, idealistic experience of, you know, call it Satori, Nirvana, the connection. Oh, um, one of the quotes I like is, vis-a-vis romantic love, we kiss, the world disappears, and we become the universe. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of what we're all coming towards as we make our way to these supposed different pathways to the light. And then about mythic statements, I think it's really important. Subtext is great, absolutely. But there are three times in a story when you need to say exactly what you mean, and that's to state the mythic theme, to give the protagonist their mission statement, and then what is the lesson statement? What did they learn on that journey? Oh, that is so good. And you find it in the best stories. There, It's right there. Uh, oh, uh, Mark's Kathy and I, did a presentation, a two-day workshop for the Danish International Film School some years ago, and we were presenting the mythic statements, and she came up with some wonderful ones from, you know, because Kathy has a background in animation, you know, Disney and Paramount and all, and so she came up with the mythic statements for like Ratatouille and Up and Shrek, and oh. so good. <laughs> yeah. That she, she is really, a tearjerker. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, isn't it? It's so adorable. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Really good. So, uh, you know, I think people can keep in mind that um, sometimes you just need to say what it's all about. Say what your theme is. Say what the mission is and say what the lesson is. And those can get really, really strong and inspiring and, um, you know, sometimes transformative, depending on the, the message you're trying to get out there. Very cool. I was going to do this earlier when we got off on such great topics right away. But we're looking at your bio, and you mentioned um, different things. And, and one of the things you mentioned is XR projects, and so which uh-huh. is extended reality. And that sounds really, really interesting, but could you tell us a little bit more about what that is and what you've done? Oh, yes, yes, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, I find it's a fascinating opportunity for really expanding the storytelling technology and that we do have to craft stories differently when they are in uh, three, 360 or when it's, virtual reality or augmented reality. It's a different kind of storytelling, but story is still important. The projects I've worked on have been as a consultant on the story aspect of it. So are these like video games? I'm I'm not even sure what we're talking about. (laughs) Uh, Actually, one was uh, for a museum exhibition. And 
founder of the museum, they were making a, a biography, virtual reality biography of this person and what all he did and what he explored. And so it was uh, coming up with ways to present the concepts and uh, played a little bit with imagery, you know, drew some pictures and said, gee, you might try this, and what if you brought in these symbols, etc." And then um, consulting on some other stories that are about the uh, matriarchy, the ancient matriarchies in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean. And uh, a little bit of a little bit on games, but mainly it's been about um, more dramatic stories. And, so much uh, cooler. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that games are fabulous. I, my experience with games, though, was with Microsoft, their Age of Mythology game. And when it first came out, they hired me to be their spokesperson for it and do a uh, video tour talking about the mythologies that they covered in the game, which was real interesting. Oh, that's really yeah. Neat. It's going to be a technology that will continue to grow. I think we need to keep our eyes on it for a number of reasons, and part of that is what it does to our eyes and our way of seeing reality and how virtual reality can affect us. I've uh, spent some time in simulators as well, mm. and... That whole experience, it's so wonderfully different from reality. And there are, you know, mindfulness programs now that use virtual reality headsets to put you into the meditative mindfulness state. So oh, it's really... <laughs> oh, well, you know, there's, it's out there. So do some exploring, and you can find uh, places that do that, that offer that for... Uh, mindfulness, mind expansion, etc. It's also a very good way to train people and to give them the experience of being someplace they're not likely to go, whether it's, you know, a village in Afghanistan and, you know, experiencing virtually what happens in a place like that. So it's a great tool. It's going to be very interesting to see how it's used as time goes by and how it actually affects. I was just thinking that could be really freeing in a therapeutic sense for anyone who's uh, physically limited, physically disabled. I wonder if we'd be able to use that in a way to get people sort of freed up from, from being locked into their bodies. Yeah, that's a really good one. And you've seen some of that in some of the stories that are out there, too. Um, yeah. it's, it's definitely something to keep, keep an eye on. And yes. once again, also keeping an eye on how it's affecting us neurophysiologically, you know, with the blue lights and the brain stimulus. And, uh, Marks, you may have gotten into some of this in your psychology studies. You know, what is the input and how does it affect the way the brain processes information? Well, and we're so suggestive. we got to be so careful, too, because sometimes it might end up having sort of a boomerang effect. Remember, there was a, they had to come up with a whole new term for people who became terribly depressed after watching Avatar because oh, yeah. they people were so so incredibly affected and so depressed when they had to leave the world of Avatar and get back to the real world that people were um, becoming suicidal they were they were so yep. so distraught yeah, I forgot about that and there were there were uh, people they had to have therapy groups and I mean hotlines and everything 
did not know that. Oh, look it up if you can. People, um, because some people, wow. yeah, I mean, we went and saw it in 3D. It was incredible. And there was a sense of when it was over, you kind of, it's over and you're like, gosh, now we're back. It, it was sort of like, it was kind of like a real life version of Wizard of Oz where it was black and white and then it was color and it was technicolor and it was amazing and everything's, you know, animals and plants are singing and dancing and then it was you know black and white again at the end but it was real life that we left our dull world and went into that and I didn't have any negative effect but I did feel like afterwards I was like gosh if only real life could be like that that would be so cool but there were people who were who are more vulnerable I suppose to maybe uh chemical imbalances and things and they actually, I can't remember the term, but they had to come up with a specific term for the type of depression and despair that occur, that happens to people after especially repeated viewings of Avatar and then having wow. to come back into the regular world. It was wild. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And yeah. so I can imagine what, you know, this new technology might be like. Yeah. That, that reminds me, along that topic, there's the Great Courses. We have Great Courses Plus. Oh, it's great. And there's a new course that we haven't watched yet. I just watched the trailer. But uh, it talks about, examines how technology might be changing us. Our like, brains. Like, does, like, it tackles topics like, does social media actually affect our social or um, our attention span? Yes. Um, it does. I don't need a scientist. Like, relying on Google, like search engines, is that affecting our ability, our memory? memory? So, yes. You know, that kind of stuff. So. <laughs> Sorry. You haven't watched it yet. You don't know. I know, but I'm just <laughs> telling you what I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think we need to be aware of that. You know, uh, we are on the verge of evolution, of human consciousness. And a lot of that is because of the technology, the machines. And, you know, now we can get into a whole different, you, you the uh, machine-human melding, you know, an AI, and there's lots of great stories about that. Oh, you're just but, describing my um, nightmares. Yeah, yeah. It, seriously, somebody says, oh, let's, you know, let's have the Internet of Things, and your refrigerator can mm. talk, and it knows it. Don't you people ever watch the movies? Don't you know how this yeah. Thank you. Seriously. Amen. <laughs> I, I was a receptionist at a hair salon up in Vancouver. <clears throat> Marks was in film school, and this guy came in, and he was talking about how he was going to learn how to he was some yuppie guy. He's, he's learning to work smart, not work hard. And he had this book and he was like, this book is another one that explains how you can, you can get your computers and do this. So you only have to work like four hours a week. And I said, I've seen this movie. It doesn't end well. Skynet, you know, <laughs> and he just looked at me with a blank face and I'm like, I'm just telling you, I know how this ends. It never ends well. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's right. I have a word for you, Skynet. Skynet. Yeah. I mean, when I said Skynet, like one person understood in the whole place and started to chuckle, and I just got blank stare like I was a nutcase. And it reminds me that there's an article in The Guardian uh, oh. that used AI <gasps> to write an article. Oh, tell her. This was creepy. Yeah, I mean, it had to do certain... They had. To, I think they wrote the first paragraph, and they gave it some prompts, but let's talk about why humans shouldn't be worried about artificial artificial intelligence killing them <laughs> so so it's an interesting article how it talked but uh, it shows how powerful that's getting so writers so some writers are scared but that it said gonna... something like you shouldn't be worried you shouldn't be afraid 
of us, you humans just do what you do. You're hating and you're fighting and you're killing and we'll just be here doing what we do. Stand back and watching you. Uh. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was something along those lines and I just was like, you know how they say out of the mouths of babes, out of the mouths of a babe robot. <laughs> oh so, boy. So some writers oh are, are scared that that might eventually replace them, but most writers- I'm gonna be Amish. Are thinking it might be a cool tool to use, kind of like prompt tools, story structure, you know, the, to work together. Because the editor still has to go through and edit it. And and they said that when they edited the column, it was like a lot of it was very clear and good and just had minor errors. Some of it was went into total rambling, a garble goo, you know, until it got back on track. So, uh, But it wrote an article about it, a topic. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting where artificial intelligence is oh going. God. You know, I'm going to thank you both for my nightmares tonight. Yeah, so <laughs> we've really gotten some weird topics or some side <laughs> topics here. <laughs> wow oh, I'm gonna have nightmares thank you guys <laughs> alright so we probably should start wrapping up the interview here you know, <laughs> after ending on such a nice topic <laughs> we're all gonna die from the robots <laughs> Skynet no no it no. never ends well um, before we go though can you tell us where people uh, or listeners can find you online and can find your books oh, your oh yes thank you they can go to PamelaJSmith.com, that's P-A-M-E-L-A-J-A-Y-E-S-M-I-T-H, PamelaJSmith.com, and they can also look at MythWorks, M-Y-T-H-W-O-R-K-S, MythWorks.net. It, it'll take you to the same website. So either MythWorks or Pamela J. Smith. Yeah, I hope everybody checks it out. If, if Myth or The Hero's Journey or The Writer's Journey, like Chris Vogler, appeal to you as a writer then i i guarantee that that you're gonna love all pamela j's stuff it takes absolutely it and you just heard pamela on here she is a hoot and a half and you're gonna just love everything she has to say <laughs> all right well thank you so much for being on the show oh thank you i really enjoyed the conversation and you uh it took me into arenas of thought that oh okay mom have to think some more about that so <laughs> i really enjoyed it thank you both so much <laughs> thank, thank you, you. Hi, this is Mer Lafferty, author of The Shambling Guide to New York City, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us, Pamela. We'll have links on the show notes to help you find her website and books. And that's it for today's Genretainment. Watch for our next episode, and until, until next time... time. Bad monkey.